And this is Jason Poblet for another podcast of the Global Liberty Alliance. Uh, we hope you're doing well. We're coming to you today from Alexandria, Virginia, as usual, right across the river from uh, Washington, D.C. Today we have uh, a special guest from across the pond, literally over in Europe. Uh, uh, we're going to speak with a fellow named Richard Ratliff, Ratcliffe, who I met several years ago. And even though he's a CPA by day, he really has become a, a human rights defender because he has uh, uh, has a very strong issue in his family right now that he's dealing with his wife. Uh, at one point, his baby girl were taken hostage uh, by the Iranians. And he spent has spent several years now uh, trying to uh, liberate uh, his, his other half. And his story is remarkable. Uh, what he has done, he has held hunger strikes, he has gone to the UN here in New York. He has uh, walked the halls of, of Congress, of the State Department, even here in the US. Of course, the work he's done in the UK. And we're going to talk to Richard uh, about this case, why it's important, and why so many Americans should pay attention to this, because there are Americans still held hostage in Iran <coughs> and in many other countries. So Richard, how are you doing? Thanks. Thanks, Jason. Um, yes, well, no, it's, it's a pleasure to speak to you. Um, pleasure to be on the podcast. Um, I think this is, uh, you know, a really important issue, and, and I'm really grateful for, for you giving it uh, the exposure. Um, as you say, my, my background is is um, I am British, married to uh, a British Iranian lady called Nastanin Zagari Ratcliffe. Um, we met when she came over as a student, um, got married. I started working as an accountant, um, and she used to go back to Iran um, probably once a year. Uh, um, whilst we were uh, newlyweds and then once we had a baby a uh, daughter called Gabriella who is now six but uh, once Gabriella was born she would go that much more frequently uh, so at least twice a year to, to show off to her mum and dad look at mm. uh, my daughters uh, growing up um, and she went back to Iran in 2016 in April 2016 well in fact went, went in March um, and after a two-week holiday which was Iranian New Year New Year every every March, and at, at the end of their holiday, um, she got arrested at the airport um, on the way back, and disappeared. Um, so I was due to pick her up um, in London when she landed, and I got a phone call from her brother uh, to say, "Listen, Nasni didn't catch the flight. Um, don't mm. worry, she'll be on a different flight. Um, but don't worry." And 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 I confess, I took that at face value. I, I didn't worry. I went back to sleep because it was early in the morning. Um, and then it was only through the course of that day where we had no news where she was. Um, she was arrested, but but our daughter, Gabriella, at that point was 22 months, um, was, was given over to her grandparents to look after her. Um, it was three, four days before we had any contact at all with, with where Nadine was, um, which were, were probably the most terrifying of, of mm. the past four, four years. Um, and then we had contact and, and we were just glad she was alive. She was allowed to telephone. Um, and say she was helping uh, some people with, with uh, their investigations. She wasn't allowed to say who got her, she wasn't allowed to say where she was, just that, that she'd been given some lunch. Um, and then she called again two or three days later and said she was being released. So we were all very excited. Um, and then that didn't happen. Um, and she disappeared again. Um, and it was about three weeks before anyone confirmed where she was. She'd been taken to a province about a thousand uh, miles away. Uh, in Kerman, um, mm. and and then I think it was another another week before anyone confirmed who'd got her. People were holding her with, a, with the Iranian Revolutionary Guard, um, which is um, part of the Iranian regime. They're, they're separate to the government, um, and they have been 
I mean, little did we know at the time, but they have been picking up uh, foreign nationals, uh, dual nationals, started with Americans, but have expanded beyond um, to most uh, Western nationalities now. In fact, most nationalities, not just Western. Um, and our story essentially went through a phase of, of disorientation and panic and fear. Um, me as the you know, husband back in London, not quite able to understand what was going on, but, but really disbelieving like this was something, something out of a film. Um, and, you know, she'd gone on holiday, like it, it, right. whatever she'd been taking, you know, people on holiday with young children, look after young children. That's what, what we all do if we've got a, a one and three quarter year old. Um, so it just felt like it must be a mistake, but it, but it went on for, for quite a long time. Um, and I, through the course of, of being disoriented, I, I end up speaking to, you know, lawyers and people who you know might know something about, and i not really time for my sins not really shown much interest in Iranian politics like I had no idea this sort of thing could happen um but eventually I found I got put in touch with um with other families a couple of families who had been through this experience and, and one who was going through it um and in all of their cases they said listen um this is going to be difficult um this is really stressful and we can't give you advice because there is no roadmap through something like this. Um, and you will have a choice about whether to keep quiet or whether to go public. Um, but in our case, I wish we'd gone public earlier. Earlier. Um, yes, it, it's interesting. Let, let me ask you something. This is, um, unpack this a little bit. Uh, back in that time frame, uh, I think our, our listeners will remember that that was the whole heyday of you know, the JCPOA, the, the, the Iran deal that, people hear so much about in the media. And back then, I guess, even Nazanin and many others who were traveling to Iran probably didn't think they were in any sort of trouble. Even though they have a track record of doing this sort of thing, uh, most people felt that there was this this new period, I guess, this, this detente, if you will. I mean, I remember in September of that year, it may have been a little before then, but definitely after uh, Nazanin had been picked up, officials here, uh, in the U.S. had negotiated some pretty big agreements with uh, uh, the Iranians, including the sale or purchase of uh, heavy water from the Iranians, and then eventually a, a, um, a permission to Airbus to sell, and Boeing to sell airplanes to Iran. So there was this new era, this new period, supposedly, that was, that was starting. Did, did you, did Nazanin or you, I, I've heard you say this before, but I want you, I want the listeners to hear you explain that. Uh, it, do you think Nazanin even thought this was a possibility back then? Look, I think you're absolutely right. So no, we didn't think it was a possibility. Uh, Nazanin had been to Iran four times with Gabriella and Gabriella was, was, you know, one and three quarters. So she'd been going more frequently every six months. Um, and, and, you know, she'd been to Iran every year since she'd come over to the UK um, 10 years earlier. So we didn't think it was a possibility. Um, I, I confess I hadn't, I, you know, having done a bit of digging around, I, I then came across hostage cases. But, but kind of like as something that happens to other people, like it, you know, it doesn't right. happen to normal non-political people. Um, and I think probably all Iranians, um, people who would want to go back, would almost kind of have an internalised sense of where the red lines are. And if you're someone that wants to be political, you don't go back. If you're someone that wants to go back, you stay away from politics and you, you know, you, you just post pictures of, of flowers and um, mm. you know, cups of coffee and, and the lunch you've had. Um, and Nazanin was, was someone who wanted to always go back and see her mum. So she was very careful about not getting involved in politics. 
Um, and I think, you know, felt that she was always, you know, staying away from anything that would be dangerous. Um, and you are right that, that back then, I mean, even in our house, there were, it, it was the feeling of a new dawn that, that, you know, Iran had been a pariah state for a long time. Um, it, if you have an Iranian passport, it's, it's really hard to get a visa to go other places. Um, and, and so, you know, one of the things Nazanin liked about coming over to the UK was, was the freedom that we had, both literally, but also the, the way in which you could be treated as someone that wasn't suspicious and could go to other countries. Um, and, and I think, yeah, it never occurred. I mean, there was, in retrospect, there was a wave of people who were picked up precisely around the nuclear deal um, and precisely as leverage uh, in different aspects of that and in different aspects. Of you know, the reason why I ask it, Richard, is exactly something you just said there before I asked you the question was that you wish you had come out sooner. And I can't tell you enough if um, most families don't go public and you know the reasons why uh, and had more families been public about it and governments around the world, I believe, should have urged people to be more public about it. Uh, great people like Nazanin may have made a different decision, could have factored something in a little differently. I mean, I, she, she's a remarkable lady. I mean, we haven't talked much about what she did, but before we jump into hostages, I want to talk about her a little bit because of, mm. uh, I know about her through you and what I've read. I mean, she, not, she, not only she's a mom, but she's also a charity worker and somebody who uh, loves her family and her proud of her Persian roots. And I, I think that's pretty normal for anybody from any, from especially when they have their ancestors or relatives and, you know, ancestors from a, their ancestral roots and also her, her current family connections. Uh, it must have been very difficult for her to even accept that she was being detained for something, uh, for doing something right. Uh, and yeah, I, I, I think that's all absolutely right, Jason, that, that, that yes, she is a proud Iranian. Um, yes, this was a real shock, um, uh, you know, that her country could do something like you know could pick up an innocent person and frame them um and and she wrote an, an open letter um, after she'd been held for about a year basically saying that you know i i wanted i wanted my husband to come back i wanted my my in-laws to come and visit i i was really proud of my country i wanted to show off and felt how how unfairly it was being treated and this is not the country i wanted to show mm. this this just isn't um and and you're right she her background um is charity work she she um, started off as an English teacher and, and ended up becoming a translator and interpreter during the BAM earthquake, um, mm. so humanitarian work um, back in Iran in 2003, um, and then ended up working for the, for the Red Cross and the World Health Organization, came over to the UK um, and ended up working in different charities, um, most recently the Reuters charity, so that's uh, an organization that um, yeah, helps, helps kids get into journalism really, um, and, and she'd done a bit with the BBC charity as well. Um, so, you know, kind of educational projects, um, not in Iran, um, yeah, not in Iran at all, but, but things that, that are trying to make the world a better place. Mm. Um, and, and certainly it was a complete shock um, that, that she could be taken. I mean, I, yeah, I, I remember thinking that, that, you know, this must have been made up. I mean, it, as I say, most, most Iran hostage cases, there is a governmental dispute going on. Um, and they are using people as leverage as in the dispute. Yeah. Um, for that, they tend to start off by blaming the victim and putting out a story about this, and you were doing something, you know, essentially some kind of spying, um, whether that is that you were, you know, connected to academia or you're connected to a charity or you're, um, you know, connected to some sort of NGO. 
Um, and, and there are varying levels to which someone is connected or isn't connected, but it, you know, it, it's a story that's used to, to propagate a reason for, um, well, holding on to someone really. Um, and, and yeah, I think, I mean, I get asked quite a lot now what, what's Nazanin like, and, and obviously in some ways, it, it, you know, it's a long time since I've seen her. Mm. Um, it's now four and a half years we've been campaigning for her. And I remember when she first got taken, someone, one of the families that I mentioned that, that I spoke to before we went public, sitting me down and saying, listen, th this could last a long time. This, you know, this could be three to six months. And we think, well, this is crazy. Like, she hasn't done anything. Like, why? And I, <laughs> yeah. I understand. I understand how people get arrested in rough places and get held for a few hours in the police station. Like, I can, I can imagine. That. I can imagine it's overnight. But three months? Were you kidding? Um, and here we are, four and a half years later. Yeah, four and a half years. Um, yeah. And 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 you're right that one of the things I think that is negligent about the government's approach, and it's all governments, um, is that they do advise uh, families to keep quiet. Um, sometimes quite stridently. So the British government have, have been pretty, pretty insistent we keep quiet, but but they're not the worst. I mean, some governments are, are off the scale, um, and it that's kind of advice that's given in all consular cases. So a consular case is where you get into trouble overseas, you've broken the law overseas, maybe because you know you intentionally didn't, maybe because you didn't quite appreciate the law in a, in a, in a different context, um, and then your government steps in and tries to to help you out. Broadly, asks the country that's detained you for a favour. Um, so they'll go easy on this one. He didn't quite realise what he was doing, um, and and you get and that's why the rationale is always to keep quiet. In a hostage case, it doesn't work at all because it's not like they've accidentally arrested Mazanin or the others. They, they they've deliberately targeted someone for their passport. Um, exactly. And they're using exactly. Their um, And and it you know I, one can see from the government's perspective how they don't want the person who's being held to become an important asset, um, and publicity does make them more important. Um, because then potentially the sort of the payoff becomes bigger. But from a protecting your loved one perspective, it's absolutely vital that you mm. speak out and you, mm. and you shout about it because it does keep them safer. And, and certainly I mean, a lot of horrible things have happened to Nazanin, um, but by and large, she's been safer than nearly all the other uh, prisoners held in, in Edinburgh prison. And we're going to take a break in a second and we're going to come back to this because this is extremely important, especially for our listeners who may have family in Iran or in any country uh, to hear the, a loved one say this. It's one thing to hear a lawyer or, or an advisor asking you to, you know, silence is, is, is maybe indicated at the beginning of, of one of these cases. We're not saying go out there and start speaking right away, but in some cases, silence, especially over a prolonged, especially over a prolonged period of time can be detrimental. But something Richard just said there that we'll pick up when we come back is how broad this is. Uh, most Americans remember or should remember the American hostage crisis, where for 444 days from 1979 through 1981, uh, 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 444, uh, excuse me, a group of Americans were held hostage in the U.S. Embassy. Uh, but this process kind of hostage taking a state policy, I believe, has been perfected. And when Richard talks about uh, dual nationals and foreign nationals from several countries, at, at last count, at least the count that we as an organization have kept track of this, there have been at least 15 or more uh, foreign uh, uh, people from 15 different countries whose citizens have been unlawfully imprisoned or held hostage, which will, again, when we come back, we're going to talk about that important distinction. But it's, it's I believe it's statecraft. They use it as leverage. In fact, Iranian government officials, regime officials are, are on record uh, saying hostage taking works. We should keep doing it. There's videos. I will provide a link to that. Um, and we'll talk to Richard when we come back about that issue, the dual nationality issue, silence, and also 
What led to this uh, sideline event at the United Nations General Assembly where he came over here and met with a group of other families who were going through something similar. So we'll be right back. Richard, when, Hi there, Jason. how are you doing? So we, we, you mentioned a term earlier, and I think it's important for, for listeners for, to hear what, what it means. Uh, consular cases, when you have your embassy officials uh, visit you in a foreign prison, for example, and every country has their protocol, how they do it. I agree with you. I think the entire policy needs to change in all countries. And in fact, this week we had a, uh, an event with the Foley Foundation, which, you know, uh, you've met with Diane Foley and, mm. and have, have talked to her about your experience and what her son went through when he was assassinated by ISIS, which was a horrible, horrible case. But they've turned that tragic event into something very positive. Uh, this issue of going silent, I think uh, our, our listeners would, would, would like to hear a little more about what that means, because in consular cases, you're right, most foreign governments will tell you, say nothing, you increase the value. Of course, what we said this week at the Foley Foundation event, silence is probably one of the last things you should do in a hostage case, because it, you have to give them protection. And those of us who grew up during the Cold War and saw our members of Congress take to the floor of the House and Senate and speak the names of dissidents behind the Iron Curtain and in other places. And even in South Africa, a lot of people forget that part of the strategy in the release of Nelson Mandela was a very public campaign uh, to raise awareness about his unlawful imprisonment in South Africa. So why, you know, explain to our listeners, why do you think the UK government wanted you all to stay quiet when it first started? Yeah, it's, it's a really good question. Like, I think the part of the idea will be at the beginning, and it's not a crazy idea. Part of the idea at the beginning will be, listen, we don't know what's going on. Um, the moment you make this into a big political football, you'll get powerful factions will get involved and it'll get more complicated. So, you know, give the system a space of a couple of days, a couple of, you know, to, to work things out. It's, it's probably their instinct of advice. And, and, and there's, you know, that's not nonsense in fairness. We, we didn't go public on day one. You get very few people that do. And when they do, it's because they know exactly why someone's been taken and, and they want to make sure they stay safe. Um, and thereafter, I think there is a, a misdiagnosis going on. So they try to treat this as a constant case. Um, there probably is also, um, I mean, a kind of, a, there's a hostage logic to it, but, it, but it's, you know, the interests of the family and the interests of the victim are different from the interests of the home government. Mm. Um, so in Nazanin's case, um, my interest is keeping Nazanin safe um, first and then getting a home second. Um, the British government's interest is not having her used as leverage against them. Um, those are not the same interests and, and it's nothing personal, but, but the more they keep us quiet and, and manage us, um, the less likely um, they are to have to pay up whatever it is that, that Iran um, reckons they're owed. Um, and, and that structural tension has played through in, in our case all along. Um, and I think, you know, you touched on it. In our case, in the case of lots of Iranian cases at the moment, you know, there was a nuclear deal that was signed. There was a lot of hope that that was going to uh, lead to a new dawn and to a better future. And 
kind of an assumption almost of like trickle down politics that if we build this good relationship then things will get better and this kind of thing will stop happening and the people who are taking hostages are trying to disrupt that process mm. so we don't want to indulge them we don't want to give them the oxygen of publicity um and a bit like you know the way you would deal with a, scream, a screaming child you would you put them on the naughty step and you ignore them um and that kind of, of politics so it's almost like asking the victims to take one for the team um while the politics moves on and, and improves things um, and and of course, you know, in in posterity is a, is a hindsight's a great thing. Um, in in the Iran case, that didn't happen. Uh, there was a wave of people that got taken um, as the nuclear deal in the build up to the nuclear deal, and as it, it blossomed. And then there's been a second wave that's been taken as it's fallen apart, um, and the slightly different motives, but but the practice has continued and grown. Um, and as you say, I think it it is a form of diplomacy. I think Iran practice is a form of, of hostage diplomacy. They're quite refined in how they do it. Um, they're quite sophisticated in how they game international law to do it. And, and one of the reasons why they take dual nationals as opposed to sort of single nationals, so as opposed to just purely US citizens or purely British citizens, a dual national is useful because you can you can then deny consular access. You can say to the foreign government, British government in our case, US government in other cases, uh, I'm sorry, you can't come and visit because we regard them as Iranian. Um, and one of the refrains that the Iranian system will put out all the time is the judiciary is independent and we do not recognize dual nationality. Um, you know, and of course, it's, it's, it's a nonsense because they've taken some of the past. But, you know, the, these political euphemisms get used. Um, and my sense, I mean, I think for diplomats in all contexts, their advice is to, to keep quiet and to keep things discreet. Um, and, and they're firm believers in. Um, you know, the, the power to, to have discretion to operate in, in ways that are unseen. Um, so there's, a, there's an ideological element as well. Um, and, and I think, it, you know, if I think about the arguments we have with the British government, we probably have four years of, of behind closed doors complaining at them, um, that, you know, whatever you're doing, it's not working. It, it's taken them a long time to realise that what they're doing doesn't work. Mm. Um, and I'm not sure even now, they fully exhibit. I think we, I find with we get new government ministers and, and you know, they'll be given the file and told to encourage us to keep quiet. Um, and then after about a year, they'll start to question it. And, and after two years, um, that they'll probably be ready to listen to the family. But, but we've had enough sort of volatility in our, in our politics that we keep changing ministers. Um, so there's, there's an awful lot of, of reset on the part of, of the diplomats. Mm. Um, that's not, not entirely cynical. I think, I think there's an ideological baggage there as well, which means that they just think this is the way of handling it. Um, and in the UK case, the US will be different, but in the UK case, they, they refuse to acknowledge uh, that Nazan's a hostage. Um, you know, they insist on calling her a constable case. And mm. so there's a way in which that sort of putting people into a certain kind of box then produces a certain kind of behaviour. Um, and and it, that's been a long battle. Um, I mean, it's, you mentioned the Foley Foundation. I think I think they're a really important organisation. They're obviously US-based um, and and focused, you know, rightly on on bringing Americans home and protecting Americans. Um, but the role they've taken up in in articulating that that what the government does is not good enough has been profoundly important uh, across the world. Yeah, you know, it's um, during the during the um... This issue about the silence and some of the policy debates that you've outlined there, believe it or not, here in the States, we had a very similar debate all the way back in the late 19th century, believe it or not. And it involved England, 
it, mm. it, it involved hostages too. In fact, there's a law in the mm. books right now that's called the Hostages Act. And it was, it has its roots, and though it wasn't called that, but uh, it was a law that was passed to deal with the issue of dual nationals. Of course, back then, we were talking about the Finian Irish who, mm. had, who had invaded Canada multiple, three times, and mm. they had been arrested by the British uh, uh, for a series of crimes. You know, the, the reason why they did this, by the way, as a little side note, was because they thought that, and these were Civil War veterans who fought for the Union back then, who felt mm. that now it was time to help liberate Ireland and they wanted to raise the passions of the issue here in the new world. So they, they thought these incursions into Canada, it's an interesting part of American history. <laughs> that it, It's kind of, uh, it's, some of them frankly are comical, but uh, yeah. and in fact, you read some of the incursions and why they did this sort of thing makes you wonder how they even thought this would work. But what was interesting yeah. from a hostages perspective was that the debates on the Senate and House floor when they debated that bill were almost exactly the issues that you are outlining there today in, in 2020, because it was the issue about, wait a minute, there is no dual nationality. You're an American, whether you take the oath if you were a citizen and naturalized or where you were born here, and when you are arrested by a foreign power, your, your, your rights as an American just don't fizzle away. Uh, the British were trying these men, by the way, under British law. Mm. And anyhow, it's, it's, it's a convoluted history, but the law still valid. It's still on the books, and the president in the United States has I don't know how the UK does this, but extraordinary powers, meaning the Congress basically says the president can do just about anything except declare war, because that's, of course, something Congress does. Uh, yeah. But he has broad, broad authorities uh, to, to deploy the full force of this government uh, to rescue Americans when they're caught, for example, by non-state actors, which is a separate type of case. Or yeah. in these type of cases, we have a consular that's element to it. I'm curious what you think, though. And we're, now we're going to jump into the advocacy phase because you, you, when you've come over here, we've chatted about this, and uh, you've talked to a great group out there also. That's a Redress UK, who's who's done some work in this space. The the governments around the world just need to do more. And the Foley Foundation has stressed this. We've stressed this when we've advocated for other clients. We've even talked about internationalizing. Uh, this effort. There is an international convention against taking of hostages that my, you know, the U.S. is a party to, the Iran's a party to it, they constantly violate it. You in September of 2019 were part of a special group of people uh, that even though, by the way, you have a great member of backbench, I think she's a backbencher over there, I think we should mention her briefly, uh, uh, Sadiq. Yes. Yeah, Sadiq, yes. yeah. She, she, she's been, a, and you can talk to her, talk about her in a minute over in the House in, in the House of Commons, what she's done, because she's always out there speaking on your behalf and how important to have a champion is. But why did you feel you had to come over here to advocate at the UN, but not just the UN, you brought, you helped bring together even Americans in this effort? Yeah, I, look, I think, I think you're right. That, that, I mean, there's so much you said there, Jason. Let, it, without doubt, um, we all start off in a in a kind of an individual angst about what to do with our case and how to get our loved one home um and and the monologue i had at the beginning was whether to go public how to go public whatever and, and say partly for me in the end it was i think going public being you know loud keeps nazanin safe protects her from the worst of, of what could happen to her uh, and i think it's important that she knows that we care um and that you know just by speaking out and and challenging um, her abuse um, messages to get to her, so she did know. So, so that was that initial phase of our, of our advocacy w was kind of shouting from the rooftops, and, and 
just wanting her to know that she wasn't alone um, when she was being kept in solitary. Um, and I think gradually we got more sophisticated. So probably at the beginning, as I said, that you know, family said to me it could be three to six months. So we, we built this sort of campaign that for the first eight or nine months was just sprinting and shouting and, and demanding the government, you know, bring her home. In the kind of naive expectation that actually when the government realised, you know, UK government realised that one of its citizens was being held in this way and so outrageously and so provocatively, it would move heaven and earth to correct the injustice, um, which didn't happen, but but certainly was what drove our advocacy. And um, with time, you're right, we, we started to do more in Parliament and we have a um, a, a great um, member of parliament. So our Nazanin's MP, my MP, um, is a lady called Tulip Sadiq, who was a was a fairly new backbencher when when this case started. And in fact, the first time I went to visit her office, she'd just given birth herself. Wow. Um, so so the case made quite a resonance for her when you know she had all these mums groups saying, "Listen, there's a mum being taken hostage in in Iran. What what's going on?" Um, and it, it mattered for her in a, in a, you know, the idea that you know, someone could have their, you know, their baby taken away from them for, for no good reason on holiday when they'd gone to visit their own mum. She, yeah, has stood with us all the way um, and we've probably you know, learned a lot. How, how, how important is it to have a champion like that? I know here in, here in the States, we urge the families that we counsel on this to try and find a champion in the House or the Senate, somebody to be a voice for them. Do you think it's important to have somebody in the government that will champion these cases? So, so I think it's important to have someone, I mean, a politician, so perhaps not always in the government, but someone's willing to, to call out the government and challenge the government and is treated as a, you know, as a peer by the government or by the government ministers. Um, and, and certainly yeah, as a family, if I think about the way, you know, when we first started talking in the media, p people would listen to us as a victim um, and, and be looking for me to, you know, express emotion about how much we're suffering and how sad I am as Nazanin's in prison, how sad Nazanin is in prison. But someone that has the authority to explain what is going on, well, a lawyer can do that to some extent. But someone that can call out the government and say, listen, this isn't, you know, this is not good enough. You need to have a politician um, and certainly having a champion that keeps raising the case that works with other families and, and, and your point around um, you know why we ended up at the UN meeting with other families is precisely that that we're all stronger together um, you know these are not isolated cases that are unconnected um, there are differences sometimes and sometimes those differences are keenly felt and can be quite complicated um, for sort of group solidarity but but you know, in, in so many cases, we're all going through the same common patterns. And, and we had, I mean, I've been what, campaigning for four and a half years, but probably the most moving thing I did on a personal level was, was, was that first meeting you talked about, where we, we came together as a group of families and just shared our stories. Mm. Um, and it, it was profoundly moving to hear what other people had gone through, to recognise our suffering in theirs and to recognise, you know, parts of, of, you know, our story, parts of the strength of Nazanin from hearing people talk about their own their own story and what, what their loved ones have gone through. Um, and, and there's, you know, a, a case like this, um, in some ways this is so extreme, but you will get lots of advisors, and whether it's lawyers, whether it's the media, whether it's the government, whether it's politicians, helping in their different way um, and, and offering opinions and offering advice. Um, but obviously it's some level having an agenda, um, benign agenda or, or otherwise. When, when you talk to other families, they're the only people that stand in the same shoes. Um, and, and there's just a, an understanding and a, a trust that comes that I don't think you can replicate in, in any other space. And it, it's such a 
profoundly disorienting and scary and overwhelming experience that just having someone that you know you can share a story with and, and you know there's some families that um, take different positions to us and how much they advocate um, just being able to share what we're going through and, and you know letting someone know you're not alone is, is profound and, and that's and let's take another break and we're going to pick up right there at in New York with Richard telling us a little bit about some of those stories and what happened after that because he he's also done a hunger strike and I'd like to hear I think our listeners would love to hear some more about that uh, we'll be right back hello fellow liberty warriors if you haven't heard about anchor it is the easiest way uh, to make a podcast it's free uh, for starters there's also uh, an awesome creation tool. If you don't want to hire a producer right away, you can record and edit your podcast right from your phone, right from your computer, anywhere you are, at any time. It's uh, distributed for you, so that's really important. Once you record this, you need to get it to the right platform. They will do that for you, including on Spotify, Apple Podcast, and many, many more. You can also make money from your podcast with no minimum listenership. It's everything you need to make a podcast. It's all in one place. It's very easy to use. So give Anchor a try. Download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. That's anchor.fm to get started. Richard, tell us a little bit about, you know, every year the United Nations General Assembly uh, hosts its annual session. It's an international uh, gathering in New York City that runs roughly from September to part of January. And if everybody, you know, people who watch these speeches at the UN, they're probably familiar with the world leaders going on that stage and at the UN General Assembly Hall and they give speeches. But there are these events called side events and you help put together one of these side events with other families. And you mentioned how important that was to you. I, I think, tell us a little bit about how that happened and how did the advocacy evolve? Because eventually uh, the, these families stayed together in contact. Uh, I think they also each felt some strength from these events. Uh, I had several of, of people that I worked with who attended, uh, family members who attended uh, that gathering. I thought it was very inspirational to them. But then you went off and did a hunger strike. So, so from the time that uh, and how important is this to Nazanin, by the way, when they hear about this sort of thing? Because that's also important. Yeah. So, I, I mean, it's right what you say. We we went to the UN the very first year Nazanin was taken on, on our own. Um, and the reason we did it was because all the world leaders are there. And it was sort of our chance to try and, um, if not meet the Iranians, at least put our, our face in front of them. Um, and, and to knock on the door of the embassy and the UN mission. So... We we went to um, actually. Can we can we cut just for one minute? So I won't have to. Sure. I, I just have to say good night to someone. Else. Of course. Well, and while he's doing that, I think the the importance of these events, especially with what Richard was just saying, is to uh, it's a multi prong effort. I mean, you have to engage not only your host government, your your country government, and make sure they do what they can to help you, but 
you should also, in some cases, in fact, most cases, reach out to the government that's holding your loved one uh, hostage. There's just uh, no way around it. And in the case of Iran, of course, it's especially uh, challenging because between lawyers and it's not a free society, so it's not as if you can um, uh, do it as you do in the UK, for example. Uh, it takes a little, a little more work. So what Richard is going to talk about is some of these campaigns that were multi-pronged and it, it, it's not just the family balancing and taking care of their loved one as best they can when they're in these terrible places, but you have to deal with the government uh, that is responsible for helping your loved one come out. You also have to deal with the government holding your person uh, in unlawfully imprisoned, in this case, Iran. And in the case, you know, it comes over to the UN and it's, it's an opportunity not only to get in the face, if you will, of the Iranians, but try and seek support of others to help you in what it is you're trying to do. I think, I think that's really well put, Jason. I, I, we, we came out to Iran, we came out to the UN principally to, to try and meet the Iranians and then also to go around and knock on the doors of different uh, country missions to ask them probably first year, you know, what they could do on Nazanin's case. Um, by the second year, we began to be aware that actually, you know, there's a number of these cases um, and, and, you know, knocking on the door and, and trying to build solidarity um, or concern or, or even just awareness that, you know, this is a problem. This is, this is you know, this shouldn't be happening. Um, so anyway, it was the third year that, that by then we'd begun to meet with a number of families and, and found that we'd be doing this in parallel. So I would go on one day, then you'd have another family knocking on the door early in the day or later in the day. Um, that actually it made sense not to be all quite so siloed, but to start to start working together. Um, and the first step was, was, was as I say, we, we had a, a side event where we just shared experiences. And, and it, I don't think in the room everyone was, was necessarily ready to all work together and to be a joined up union. Um, but just sharing those experiences was, was profoundly important. Mm. Um, I think for all of us there, uh, and we had some hostages, some former hostages, so some people have been through it, but who wanted to come back and, and stand in solidarity with those who were still going through it. Um, we had a few who were listening on the call but didn't say anything, so they, they, you know, publicly they weren't there, but, but they, could, they could share. And, and, and just to make it a sort of a, a together space, as it were, a space where you know, people could feel they weren't alone. Um, and, and you're right, that did lead to then us doing a couple of things together. We, we did a joint submission to the UN. The um, UN has a human rights system where there are different opportunities where you can submit documents. Um, and there's a big one called the Universal Periodic Review where you can yeah, submit um, about a country's gross human rights abuses. So we as families made a submission. Um, how, about, how effective do you think that process is? And It's um... a really good question. Like I think in, it feels to me, you know, sometimes it's a drop in the ocean. Uh, the ocean is bigger. Um, but it, but it, you know, it doesn't feel like you've moved things too right. much. Um, I, 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 I think with lots of, of campaigning, you, there's a lot of it's just chipping away at stuff. Um, and, and sometimes, you know, so some of the stuff we've done at the UN, um, it's felt at the time like quite a lot of work uh, and, and not sure what impact it's had immediately. Some things we did previously have proven to be very useful over the years. Um, mm. So I think... You can't always, you know, there's a lot of just putting things on record and getting people aware. And, and you know, the fact that we knocked on the door of the Canadian mission for three years in a row, 
meant that you know, by the third year they opened the door a lot more than they did on the first year. Um, it, it's like all advocacy, you, you, you just have to keep putting in the hard yards um, to get somewhere and, and you, you don't know where the breakthroughs are going to come. Um, you know, it, you keep it, saying you, you keep saying that word years. It's, it sounds almost inhumane for someone to be held this way for so long. It just makes me very, very upset. And this is something that we talked about the Foley event this week. An American unlawfully imprisoned somewhere, anywhere, frankly, it doesn't matter if you're a hostage or just picked up by the police anywhere in the world. It's one minute too many uh, to yeah. be held this no, I, way. I, I, I think that's right, and, and, I, and it's one of the, I mean, some of the families, some of, we work with some of the, uh, fa not the families, some, some of the, the former hostages themselves, and their sense of time scale is very different from mine. So mine has become a bit browbeaten, and we'll talk in years, and, and you know, I can talk to, um, say, Nazar, Saka, um, and, and for him, you know, every moment that his, his former cellmates are there is one too many. Um, how, how, important, how important was it, uh, is it, for Nazanin to know, does it give her, I mean, of course you're her husband and you've gone, let me tell you, she's lucky to have you because a lot of family members just wouldn't know where to start. You've taken this um, as uh, to a whole new level as far as advocacy goes. You even went on hunger strike for her. And sometimes that's something only the prisoners do, but uh, you've, you've put your body, your mind, your soul, your life to save her. And uh, it's must be a, Something I know I've heard from many hostages, dissidents, political prisoners, how important it is to them, the world, know, not to forget them, but that people are fighting for them when these things I, I, are happening. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. I, I mean, it, you know, I, I think it's true that none of us know what we're doing. And at the beginning, we're all, we're all, you know, fumbling in the dark. Um, and, and I mean, you mentioned the hunger strike. So I, I went on hunger strike um, with Nazanin. She went on hunger strike. Um, in the summer of last year, uh, so summer 2019. And the reason I did it was because she was going on one. I thought, well, she's stuck behind the prison walls. No one's going to see it. Mm. Um, you know, as you say, many prisoners go on hunger strike. The Iranian system is pretty jaded. It's, you know, it will just leave you for a few weeks and then see, you know, how serious you are. Um, and I didn't want that to happen. So I went on hunger strike in front of the Iranian embassy um, and brought a tent with me. Um, and I... The reason I did that was because, you know, I'd seen someone do that once before um, on the news. Um, and, and, and in the end, I mean, it wasn't that long, it was a couple of weeks of the strike for, but the Iranian embassy was outraged that we were allowed to do it. Um, outraged and, and built a wall and tried to spray paint us off um, wow. and, and, you know, tried to do all sorts of things, which, which, you know, they'd obviously been given orders to try and keep us away and given orders to try and not have press attention. But all the things they did were really interesting for the media. So, so, so they ended up having a sort of a permanent film crew there, filming me on, and a hunger strike, you know, from a morbid perspective, it's not actually very interesting. Like basically you, you film someone at the start and then you come every so often to check how, how much worse they look. Media terms, it's really quite it, it's not. Um, it's not funny, let me tell you. The hunger strike is a difficult, <laughs> you, you put your body under a lot of stress, but the way you described it, uh, it's, it really is a matter of fact, that's what you're doing. The media wants to see how you look after a few weeks. Well, yeah, you have to learn to not be too sensitive with the media, I think. <laughs> uh, but but, but um, what, yeah, because they, you know, enough interesting stuff. And one of the things that happened, so two things happened on the hunger strike, and physically, it was odd. I, I, I mean, I was 
hungry for a couple of days and then my body adjusted and, and then physically it wasn't that tough for a while it, emotionally it became tough it, it felt a bit like you know if you've if you've not slept properly um and and you you begin to lose track of your emotion you just get very irritable right um that that's what i, I remember learning not to do any interviews in the afternoon because i'd say some terribly sick favorite things about like, politicians and stuff so let me ask you, I mean, the Iranians, I know they, they have this, um, they, they do not like to be shamed or, or, or stood or faced. I mean, they, this honor thing with them, they, they must have been, like you said, very upset that you were getting the attention that both of you were receiving in the international press yeah. at the time. Comple completely outraged. So, and, and, it, and it, you know, it was, I mean, we got, we got media from all over the world. So, that, you know, I've, I've not often been interviewed by Mexican TV or Brazilian TV or <laughs> Polish TV. Or, they all came they all came um, at that point and um, partly because of the, you know, of a moment it was in British politics where essentially um, the two people were competing to become uh, prime minister um, and both of them had worked on Nazanin's case. So there was a, there was a sort of a comparison that was running at the time. Wow. Um, but yeah, I, I, um, they were genuinely outraged and, and it was, was unexpectedly the most effective thing we ever did. But, it, it became much bigger than Nazanin. So two things. One, one is um, people learnt, I think it would have been the Hong Kong protests at the time. So the Iranians built a sort of a corrugated iron wall around us. And, and lots of people came down and started leaving post-it notes of messages of support and flowers and postcards. And people started sending mail to the tent in front of the wow. Iranian embassy. Um, and we became almost like this sort of kind of subversive carnival of, of um, you know, attention, which, you know, again, they say the Iranian diaspora media loved and kept filming. Um, and, and after about day four, suddenly, you know, most demonstrations or activities we'd ever do would typically be not many Iranians attending because, you know, those who would want to go back to Iran don't want to be seen next to us because we would be seen as, as um, you know, dangerous from what we're doing. Um, but actually, as the days went on, more and more people came down, um, partly to show solidarity, and sometimes they couldn't even speak English very well. They'd be sort of asylum seekers and new immigrants who'd, who'd fled persecution in, in Iran. Um, it, but sometimes they would want to come down and just share their story and, and their family's story. And, and, you know, our story was not the worst story I heard most days. Um, mm. And I found that actually incredibly moving, that we were just sort of sitting there and suddenly it became, the embassy had become a safer space for mm. people who had been through awful things um but just wanting to come and share um and i think you know you often think with with advocacy that that part of what you're doing is you know is shaming the government is, is shaming um in my case the british government to, to get them to do something and 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 that is true but but that kind of rehabilitation that kind of the dignity of voice the the, the you know the assertion that listen you know they don't get to do this with impunity um, is a really important part of, of, of what, you know, advocacy is for, for me now, for, for Nazanin now. Um, and, and as I say, for all those, those people who, who came down just to say, listen, I see you, I see what you're going through, and, and we went through something similar. Well, when we come back, we're going to wrap up with the international advocacy and what can you as a listener here in the States, or frankly, anywhere in the world, um, listening to this can do, but especially here in the States because of the UK-US special relationship. I, uh, Richard has some thoughts about that that we want to share and also uh, why an international response uh, is needed. Uh, we'll be right back.
back as the last segment with Richard, who's been very generous with his time. I know it's late over there. It's about 8.30, 9 o'clock at night, I think, right? It's about 9 o'clock soon over there where you're at? Yes, it's, it's bedtime. I've got a small bedtime. girl negotiating. I, I hear her in the negotiating background. Negotiating whether it's really bedtime because it's Friday. <laughs> well, we're going to wrap up now and, and go over briefly why we think an international effort is indicated for something like this. As we talked about at the beginning of the show, there's some dual nationals and foreigners there from the United States. The Namazis are still there. There's British citizens, your wife, of course, and maybe one other, the Canadians, Australians, Lebanese, French, Germans, Austrians, Russians, Dutch, uh, Belgians, I think, Finns. Um, what, you know, we talked about this international, uh, internationalization of, the, of, the, of these campaigns. What do you think we have to do to make something like that happen? And what can the Americans do? Uh, can the Americans do anything? I know it's a very tense relationship with Iran, of course. You know, it's a leading question. I know America can do something, but I'd love to hear what you think America yeah, can yeah, and should do. I think it's a really good question. Uh, I mean, I think you're absolutely right that, that this is an international problem. Um, it's an international problem in that there are many foreigners, foreign citizens in Iranian prisons. Um, I think it's an international problem in that it's not just Iran that practices um, state hostage taking and hostage diplomacy, although it does it much more than most. Um, and I, I know from our experience that, you know, these are always treated as, as individual cases. You have to build a solidarity amongst, you know, fellow Brits in our case, fellow Americans in, in the US cases. Um, but actually, it, we're so much stronger if this is tackled internationally and, and that you know the thing about hostage diplomacy people are taken for reasons they're being taken for use as leverage country by country um we're in a much stronger place if we all reaffirm that actually this is this is no way to conduct diplomacy um and that needs to be something that's reaffirmed internationally um which means the families getting together and sharing stories and, and you know talking and calling on the governments to work together it means the national governments working together and it does actually mean for all of its sort of frustrations working at the un and working at the eu and working at all of these sort of multilateral fora to to say listen this is something that is bigger than than, than individuals and, and, and individual nations this is something that, that that cuts across all and you know it it takes us back to the middle ages if, if we all start taking each other's citizens hostage um, it's, it's, at least, at, at least in the Middle Ages, they uh, the hostages were were treated very differently. They were used as, um, as you know, as uh, just in in wars, the hostages would be used to kind of keep the peace, right? Yeah, and, uh, and yeah. yeah, and and you know, there was a whole etiquette of it, and, and, and um, I mean, I'm sure it wasn't as romantic as the stories, but um, <laughs> you know, there, there, there's a there's a I mean, let's be, yeah, there is a more of a disposable quality to hostages. Yeah, yeah. certainly. I mean. One is broadly safer if if you're a hostage of a government than you are if you're a hostage of a criminal gang. But um, but yeah, but it, it's you know I, I think I think there's a real reluctance to acknowledge the problem of state hostage taking, yeah. um, and that probably is where the international effort needs to start. Um, and we still have it here, by the way. It's not. And, and as we wrap up talking a little bit about the role of the Americans, because I want to get your perspective on that. Even here in the states, a lot of times to have the US government acknowledge that someone, for example, in the state actor context, mm. it's easier to pick, it's easier for, I guess, to, to, to make the designation. Well, it's not easier, but the, 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 the policy and the law and the, the type of case when it's a non-state actor and make the declaration of someone's being a hostage a little somewhat easier politically. But when it comes to these consular cases, even though in the states, we still 
have some work, even though we're better now, after Obama did his presidential policy directive, rearranging how the US government did the work and the Trump administration has continued it. They've brought home the last few years about 50 Americans uh, under this new policy that's been continued from the Obama administration. But even how you do it is still debated. But this issue of using that term hostage, it's still uh, somewhat controversial. But yeah. what do you see in the case of Iran? And you're right, by the way, many other countries do this, Cuba, North Korea, Venezuela, uh, a few others uh, do engage, as China, of course. But what, what do you see as a, as, as a UK national, a Brit, is the role that you think the US and the UK can play together in something like this? Yeah, so I, so I, I think two things. I think the, you're right, the US is not, is not all the way there, but they're further ahead than the UK is, say. I think, I think US leadership in being honest about what this practice is and calling this practice out, um, I mean, we were talking before earlier about, you know, in some ways, US citizenship has always carried uh, um, a significance that means that then, you know, people will battle to bring Americans home. Um, I, I think that's an important point, an important leadership to, right. to make the rest of the world. Um, and I think there's a way in which, you know, US politics, international politics, you know, it can be quite straightforward sometimes. Um, in a way that I think is really helpful in a hostage space. You know, there's a lot of sophisticated euphemisms um, that other countries will use that, that US political leaders won't, that they will call it out as hostage taking, particularly in Iran because of, of right. the, you know, the, the, the historical experience and, and um, as you say, the, you know, the experience of, of um, the revolution and, and the hostages of the embassy. Um, and I think, you know, the US can't do it alone. I mean, I was in, in Congress um, what it was last year, um, and and you know it, there was a clear awareness that there is this is an American problem that needs to be addressed. But but I think it's not. It, it, it's a, it's a, an international problem, um, and it does need the U.S. to work with its allies, um, with the U.K., with Canada, um, with with Australia, with with Europe. Um, so France, Germany, and you mentioned a number of countries that have got have got people being held, um, and just to to take leadership on on on. This is this is just not an acceptable way of operating. Mm. Um, you know, in the specifics of the Iran context, that there is obviously a difference in policy on the nuclear deal between the U.S. administration at the moment and most um, of its allies, who sort of tried to keep the nuclear deal going, whereas um, the Trump administration hasn't. Um, and that's created tensions in other ways. But but I think this is a universality um, that whether you are wanting a different deal, whether you're wanting a nuclear deal, whether you're wanting um, to you know, start completely again, actually a functional relationship with Iran has to be built on, on it, you know, it being safe to go there and mind your own business and come back and you know, hostage taking has to be beyond the pale. Um, and, and the US have been a lot more plain spoken than any of the other Western allies in saying that. Um, the, the Trump administration has, um, I mean, you're right, the Obama administration put a lot of effort um, into getting Americans home and into rethinking its its um, approach post uh, the work of, of Diane Foley, um, and there is a way in which, you know, I think if I, I mean, even I think on Nazanin's case, the first people we had who picked up Nazanin's case and started following, we have a petition on Change.org, and, and many people who signed it in the beginning, many people followed us on Twitter, were Americans. Um, oh. They were they were much more sensitive to the issue. Than, than the Brits are. I can see now as I look at so the way the debates happen in Australia, 
the Brits are more sensitive to it than, than the Australians are. It, you know, it, I think the US has had a painful experience of 40 years of, of Rowan's hostage taking. The UK's had that much less publicly um, and to a, a lesser extent. Um, it's now become a, you know, a big part of UK-Iran relations. Um, but I think we, we, you know, we've stood on the shoulders of, of some really amazing American activists who, who've helped us and we've learned from them. And, and you know, I mentioned the Solar Foundation, um, a number of others, um, and a number of other sort of just individuals who've just been you know, lovely and kind and caring and, and you know, um, working from their church and, and just you know, praying for us and, and doing all sorts of, of care. So that, that, I mean, as we said it, knowing that we're not alone as a family, knowing that you know, there are a number of families out there who are being supported by lots and lots of kind, caring Americans, kind, caring Brits, kind, caring you know, people from around the world, it is profoundly important for taking it day to day. But it is also what changes the world. You know, it's, it's that real resilient belief that the world doesn't have to be like this. And, and mm. if enough of us see it, it won't be. Well, Richard Ratcliffe, this has been an amazing conversation. Uh, we could keep going. I know we could, but it's late over there and uh, we've reached our, our end of the program, Mark. But I want to thank you, your whole family, uh, for what you're doing, not just because you're, you could just be in the shadows and focusing on, on, on your particular case, but you made this public. You're educating others. You're helping uh, fight for human rights. And we need the world needs more people like you doing this. And uh, I hope your family is reunited very, very soon. And if we could help, please let us know. Thank you. Thank you, Jason. Thank you for all you've done for us and for all the other families. And yeah, step by step, we'll get there. Thank you very Be much. Be well. Have a good weekend. Take care. Thank you. Goodbye. Right.